0: Okay, everyone, welcome to this week's episode of our show, True Data Ops Podcast. I'm your host, Kent Graziano, the data warrior. Sorry for the delay. As always, there's, you know, little technical glitches every time we try one of these things. But hey, we're up and running now. So with this podcast, each week we try to bring you uh, conversations and thought leaders who work in the data world and are involved in all things data ops. My um, guest today is my good friend, uh, the inventor of the Data Vault System of Business Intelligence, the man himself, Dan Lindstedt. Welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Hi, nice to see everybody.
0: So um, yeah, you and I have known each other for now, we're now talking multiple decades, So, but uh, some of the folks joining our, our DataOps show today might not know as much about you as I do, so would you mind giving us a a quick run-through of your background and your experience in data management?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I've been in the industry for around 35 years or so. Uh, um, Worked at lots of large corporations, uh, some of them global. Um, Worked with you, Kent, uh, back at Denver Public Schools. That was a lot of fun. Um, And uh, been in data warehousing almost as long, BI and analytics, and learned a lot along the way. So there's a little bit of background for you.
0: Yeah, well, so um, as you know, things are like always changing in our industry, and we've seen lots and lots of things happen over the last couple of decades. So, what are you seeing these days in, in the data world? What What do you think's hot? You know, what do you think's hype? What do you think we should be paying attention to?
1: I think in the data world, I think um, there are a lot of advances in the cloud technology that should not go unnoticed or ignored. Uh, just because you think you can't be cloud doesn't mean you shouldn't investigate it or learn about it. Uh, I think the future is cloud, absolutely. Uh, there's no question about it in terms of the way things are. And I think that there is also a collision. Uh, we're on a collision course to re uh, what is it, re-engage uh, business analytics alongside of operational systems, at least in the cloud space. And that's because data is growing at an unprecedented rate and it is about to increase again uh, because of the ingestion of text and, and uh, video and audio and all the stuff that, of course, everyone hears about ChatGPT is doing behind the scenes. So the parsing and understanding of all this data has to live somewhere and it can't move. Once it's formed and once it's stored, once it's set up, it is unable to be moved because it is simply getting too large to move. And so this is why I think the cloud is definitely the future. And this is why I think that operational systems and analytics will have to live together. They're going to be recombined, uh, uh, in that in that sense. Now there will always be data moving around. I, I don't take you know don't take away from my statements that data will stop moving. That's not going to happen ever. It's like you know the data warehouse is dead. Long live the data warehouse. You know it's it's we've we've seen all these things before. It just means the focus is going to be on keeping data where it originates. The focus is going to be on pairing up operational systems and analytic systems together in a single space, that's the focus. Uh, but there's one more trend that needs to be paid attention to, and this is this whole idea of taxonomies and ontologies, which I've been talking about for years. Uh, the whole metadata arguments, how do you discover metadata? So it's not just discovery of data sets, it's actually discovery of taxonomies and ontologies. And for those of you that may not understand that term, uh, it think of a hierarchy in Word. Uh, and if, you, if you've ever done a hierarchy of terms, uh, a flat-out hierarchy with parent, child, and peer, uh, then you've set up a, a, a simple taxonomy um, of terminology.
0: Yeah, now, um, one of the other things you've talked about uh, years ago was this idea of dynamic data warehousing. So I wanted to ask you, with the evolution of um, AI and, and the power of the cloud, as you were just discussing, do you think we're getting any closer to your concept of dynamic data warehousing? Uh,
1: yes, I would have to say, uh, you know, if I strike out the, uh, the, the government space, because I built one in 2003 with the government, uh, and it's still running today, and that's all I can say about it. So I know it's completely feasible. With the right people involved, it is completely feasible. It can be done. Um, so today in a commercial space, you need—you still need the right people. Uh, most important, you need good governance because like all AI engines, you can end up with the wrong stuff, right? AI can go off in left field and then think it's doing the right thing. But without governance or without bringing it back into, into where it should be, into alignment, uh, its it's not going to serve the business commercially. But dynamic data warehousing is on its way. I think the technology is finally there in a commercial space. The cloud is finally there. And the AI engines are finally there uh, where you can start to do some of these important things like dynamically build a data warehouse, which is one one aspect and only one aspect is dynamically build it. Uh, And then, of course, there's dynamic model modification. Some people call that uh, self-annealing or self-healing. When it makes an error, it has to make a correction on its own. Uh, and then there's the whole aspect of AI against the metadata. And the metadata includes the query use, understanding how queries are being fired, what queries are being fired, where is that metadata coming from, what are the results representing. It goes beyond caching, but it understand, tries to understand how the results themselves are related to the metadata and does the model serve that, or are they asking questions that would be better served by bringing in yet another system? These are all things that aren't being tackled today by by any of the AI systems or any of the dynamic systems that um, I can see uh, needing to be built.
0: Okay, and you, you know, you mentioned you mentioned governance, and one of the I'll say catchphrases that we use in the true data ops world is balancing agility and governance, right? Because we still, we want to be agile. And I know you and I have been, you know, all about doing agile for the last couple of decades, uh, with the, with the data vault system. So from your perspective, I wanted to see, you know, how, how do you see this concept of data ops fitting in with all this and in particular fitting in with, with data vault in, in all these regards?
1: Well, uh, in terms of data ops, I'm just gonna use the term from a conceptual level, so forgive me. Yes, not yeah, Yeah. no, no, that's fine.
0: Yeah, technology. not talking about a product, we're talking talking about a, a, a concept, right? Yeah. You know, how do we approach these things?
1: Data operations, I think the term data operations is too narrow and people are gonna shoot me for that because data operations is a massive umbrella, right? Like master data management is a massive umbrella just because like data management's a massive umbrella. But I think data ops needs to get in line and marry marry with metadata ops. I think that's where the missing piece is. I said it just a minute ago, taxonomies and ontologies and governance, so you've got the human factor, absolutely king in today's world in keeping things in line and making sure that there's business value But I think data ops alone, there's a lot of value in data ops as a concept and there needs to be continuous improvement, uh, automated uh, production of systems. And, you know, you know, me and patterns, right? Or patterns and I go way back to the data vault inception. That's where that's where patterns. Somebody once told me you can't automate a data warehouse and look, look where we are today. Right. So we're not automating everything, but we're automating quite a bit. Uh, and quite a bit more than we ever have, and that trend's going to continue. So, data ops fits in that trend, and understanding how to connect all these things, and understanding the lineage, and understanding how to improve the life cycle of management and maintenance. Those are all data ops. Correct me if I'm wrong, but those are all data ops uh, uh, concept level type things that need to happen. Yeah, you're, you're
0: hitting a lot of the seven pillars of true data ops as you're speaking. So, you're I'm all, all for it. Yeah.
1: But I, where I think it stops is at the edge of the dock where metadata takes off. Hmm. I don't think metadata ops is even something that anybody has even addressed.
0: I think I think you might have just created a new term for a new buzzword for us, Dan. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard of right. ML ops, right? But I, I haven't heard anybody say metadata ops yet. So
1: well, we may I, have started know, something. If you think about it, whenever I say the word taxonomy and ontology, a lot of people go, "Oh, well, I got to build that by hand." Or no. I got to I got to go acquire it. And you can from from a, a company that I, I work with through Bill Inman. And I, I won't mention them. Bill talks about them a lot. So if you want to go talk to them, you can find that out. But but uh, there's there, there are companies out there that sell taxonomies and ontologies and they're really well developed. At the same time, where's the automation in that world? Where's the maintenance circles? Where's the upkeep? And when you start looking for it, what you end up doing is finding the human on the other end going, well, I'm responsible for the entire corporate catalog. What? Are you kidding me? OK, you need a team here, especially in a global environment. But it goes deeper than that. It's not just the team or the, the data catalog or, or whatever. It, it's how do you maintain it? How do you use it? And furthermore, how do you glue it to the data? Right, so that when the data changes, the metadata reflects the changes, or the, when the metadata changes, it defines the right data set. There's, there's a missing piece, right? So you're standing on the dock at the end of the dock, watching the waves roll in, but to, to quote a, a song reference, those of you that know me about that, right? Standing at the edge of the bay. Anyway, uh, <laughs> sitting on the dock of the bay, I think is the right reference. But anyway, you've got to be able to, to, to tie together the data ops with the metadata ops, and it would be nice to think that you could automate some of the metadata uh, uh, jobs or tasks that the governance and the metadata masters are are trying to deal with. And today, there's I don't see anybody really doing that. Uh, I see people way off in left field trying to discover metadata, uh, but what they're doing is they're discovering metadata and then they feed it to a human. Okay. So there's a large leap between discovering the metadata, feeding it to a human, and then tying it down to the technical data set or the systems in, in which this, all this metadata applies. So I really think there's a, there's a lot to be done in, in, quote, metadata ops, which is an even bigger umbrella, but I do think they need to be walking in parallel together, you know, not, not, not data ops off on its own because it will reach the end of the dock and it can't go any further without a boat so to speak right if i'm speaking <laughs> yeah. in metaphors right i i can't i can't swim across the pacific ocean so i'm going to take a boat that's that's built to do that but you know i've got to be on the boat otherwise i don't get to the destination right so data ops has to be on the boat with the metadata ops metadata ops has to transport anyway enough of the analogy you get the idea
0: yeah yeah no that's that's great yeah in the uh um you know the true data ops pillars we do talk about we talk about security i saw someone mention don't forget about data sec ops which is (laughs) a term i'd heard uh uh, from another buddy of mine over in israel uh about two years ago and he's kind of an expert on that but that's part of it yeah in the the data ops world so yeah we've got to have security we've got to have governance Um, automation as you said um, collaboration self-service all the things that we've been talking about forever but it's um Really, we're going beyond. A lot of people say, "Oh, you know, data ops is just DevOps for data," and it's not. It, it's as you just really aptly described, way, way beyond. Just, it's not just CI/CD, right? It's not just the basic DevOps and moving things from dev to production because, well, we're dealing with data, and it's 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 a lot more complicated.
1: I I think so. Uh, security is. Is there, I'm going to go old school on everybody for a minute and remind everybody of the term I started with data management. You know, I, I, I think data management has all of these things. And then if you really want to go even further back into old school, go all the way back to the Zachman framework and figure out where data management fits in one of the cells or in many of the cells. And then you can start talking about, okay, security, security has always been there, always needs to be there. Um, I glossed over it. I didn't address it. I'm sorry I don't care what label you throw on it, but it's part of data management It's part of good governance and it's part of metadata management as well All those things live under the data management umbrella unless I'm wrong Okay, so and I could be I've been wrong before but but this is what I've learned in the industry, right? And uh, (laughs) excuse me so from that perspective security is important and i i will stop and say security of data is one aspect security of processes is another aspect security of technology is another aspect security of metadata is another aspect and how many people are thinking about that i can remember mm. working in lockheed where certain terms like business name terms were classified You couldn't walk out like you. Everybody's heard of Project Blue Book by now, which is a government uh, project that's long been exposed. Right. But if you walked out of a government site when Project Blue Book was unknown to the public and you started talking about the term Project Blue Book, you could be thrown in federal prison for that. That's a metadata term. That has nothing to do with the data underneath. It just means that you're a security risk. Right. So there are certain terms in certain industries which shouldn't be discussed outside corporate walls. And, and, and HR terms like salary, for instance, right? But the word salary, should that come up in a conversation? If an HR person is standing five feet away from you, you probably shouldn't be talking to somebody else about salary. HR is going to slap you, right? So you can't use the word salary unless you're off premise, right? In a closed, behind closed doors with a friend of yours in your house, right? Drinking a bottle of wine or something. But But this is what I mean. So... People use these terms like security data ops or sec data ops. Why does it have to stop at data is my point.
0: Yeah, exactly. That
1: brings up the esoterical question. Isn't metadata data or is data metadata? I'd say we need to keep those terms. I'd say there's a gray line, right? One is the other and the other is the other. They're both each other. But uh, in order to keep it straight in my head, I've got to have metadata label and I've got to have a data label. So there you go.
0: Right. Well, we always say, you know, metadata is data about the data, right? So it is another form of data. It's, it's, just, it's just, as we said, meta, right? So above there. And we got to think about that with the, with data ops and security and governance, you know, as, as we're, you know, as we add more automation and maybe we, we have automated metadata harvesting. Which is something that exists today in um, in the catalogs, right? They're, they're, that's really what we used, you and I used to do. We we would reverse engineer a database, right? We'd yep. reverse engineer tables and columns and schemas. Well, that brought with it a certain amount of metadata, but it was just technical metadata. Now we're looking at uh, discoverability of data and building catalogs with taxonomies and business terms, and so that's going to be out there in those catalogs and what you just raised in my mind is is, it's that question of well should everybody in the organization in a self-service data warehouse data lake house data mesh whatever it is should they all be able to see that catalog and everything in the catalog but no we probably we need some security on that is to like you said can can't Look at the corporate catalog and even see some of the terms for which there is data for analysis, because maybe that's analysis that's not appropriate to my role. It's accessing secured data or PII data or PHI data that I don't have the right to see, so I shouldn't even know it's there. I shouldn't know that social security number is even in the system because I don't have the right to see it myself.
1: Right, and that brings up a, a, another point. We talk about we started talking about uh, a dynamic data warehousing, a term that uh, I had been using years and years ago. So I want to come back to this point where you mentioned social security number. If we take if we take this context of social security number being a technical field, right, an attribute, and let's just say that it's an attribute in many different source systems or many different applications, right. But it's an attribute that means something to a human. So it's potentially a business key, although it shouldn't be. Um, it is <clears throat> it's is—it's meaningful to the business because it's used in a lot of context, especially in HR, uh, at least in, in U.S. companies uh, or companies that employ U.S. citizens or anyone with a social uh, security because there has to be uh, federal taxes related to it. right? So let's just use that. Now, if we take social security as a term and we say, okay, we have a data model element for it, the next question is, if I work backwards into the taxonomy or into the ontology, how do I define that in business and where it lives? I think this is what is truly missing. We have a data model and we can point to this data model and sometimes the data model will cover my entire wall because it's a thousand uh, tables or whatever you want to call it entities, um, depends on what level of modeling you're doing, conceptual, logical, whatever, physical. But anyway, let's just say you've got a thousand entities and you you point to 500 places that social security appears. Now you have to do this backwards reverse engineering work of figuring out what source systems it comes in. Where, Where are these tables existing? Well, what if you flipped all of this on its head? You want to talk about acceleration of a build. You want to talk about acceleration of management. You want to talk about error reduction in the process of building your analytics. You want to talk about good governance and good guidance. Then you have to start with the business way on the other side. You got to go back to the conceptual model. You got to go back to the taxonomy. Now, everybody saw, says, well, I've got a corporate glossary. I'm going to say, great. It's only good for five minutes. And they're going to ask me, well, what the heck does that mean? And I'm going to say, Five minutes after you published it, it is no longer valuable, right? Because, uh, and the question is why? Because no one can use it. It's out of date the minute you publish it, usually is the case. Someone who goes out there and changes something in a source system, now your glossary is out of date. So there's this whole, this is what I meant by metadata ops, there's this whole idea how do you automate the upkeep of something as quote simple as a glossary. But there's another problem with a glossary. A glossary by definition is what I call two-dimensional. It's alphabetical in nature. It only has two dimensions. It has an alphabetized letter under which it resides, and then there's a single term. Now, this is the other problem, a single term with one definition that always has to be right. And if you've ever done any discussions with Bill, and I know you have because Bill's a good friend of yours as well, Bill will tell you that the same definition, there can be two different definitions for the same term. They both can be right at the same time. And, and you can look at that and go, well, how does a glossary represent that? And the answer is doesn't. it doesn't. Yeah. And this is where glossaries yeah. fall down. Glossaries, in my opinion, pardon the expression, guys, ladies and gentlemen, but glossaries suck, okay? I'll just put it out there. <laughs> they just suck. And they shouldn't be built in two-dimensional alphabetical format. Well, what then should we use? They should be used or built in taxonomy format, so that we can handle this problem of having multiple definitions that are accurate for different lines of business at the same time. Now, what does that mean? Why do we get three-dimensional format? Well, we get three, uh, three dimensions here. We get, we get a location in the business, right, inside the taxonomy, and we get a, a location within among parents and peers, so we get a level. Uh, a depth level, and then, we get, uh, and then we get context, right? So we can right. add context to multiple levels of this definition by placing it in a taxonomy. And this is the right way to do this. So when you start from this angle, you talk about metadata ops, you talk about, okay, the next thing that comes is scope. Oh my gosh, how many times have I heard, I have got to build an entire corporate taxonomy before I can, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying build just enough. Follow the just in time principle of Japanese manufacturing. Build just enough and scope it down that you can get data in. Now, here comes the next bit. You got to tie your technical models, your technical systems to this taxonomy. This is what we call an extended taxonomy. And that's my term. That's my term, extended taxonomy, right? So you need an extended taxonomy and you extend it how? You take the term and you go, okay, now that I have the business term defined, how do I extend it? Where do I find it? What source systems does this data live in? That's tying the metadata to the data right there in the taxonomy. So you add the source systems to it. You name them, boom, 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 boom. And then within those source systems, where does it appear? So you're gonna drive it one layer down. Again, using the the hierarchy structure, you're gonna drive each source system down one more level And now you can start to identify where those keys appear, where that data lives. And now you've tied the metadata directly to a real production system where the data lives. Now you've got, you're crossing the bridge or you've built the boat, excuse me. (coughs) You've built the boat that will carry you forward. So when you add scope to this, and I'll just finish up with this um, and then we can continue on with our discussion here. But uh, when you add scope to this process and you say, okay, now I've only got a team of five people. I got two weeks to deliver. I'm going to an agile format. How do I deal with all this? Well, you don't want to necessarily identify if you've got 150 source systems like I did at Lockheed, you don't want to identify all 150 for the first two weeks of ingest. That's ridiculous. You take three at a time, right? Three every iteration. So you go into the taxonomy, you add three. This is a living taxonomy. It is, no, it is no longer dead upon arrival. It is a living, mutating, changing, altering, uh, metadata set evolving, that is valuable. It's valuable to the business because the business can see where you're getting your data from. It's valuable to the implementers because you can say, these are the terms that we're implementing, these are the source systems we're hitting, go. And now they can use the taxonomy for context. And oh, by the way, Can I tell you that the BI reports should be based on the taxonomy too? And the higher in the taxonomy you go, the higher the level of aggregates in your BI system. So guess what? You can automate your business rules for BI production, at least 80% of them. But no one's done it yet that I'm aware of. So there you go. Um, Hopefully that helps wrap some of these concepts together. Uh, and hopefully I, I, I said enough to blow someone's mind to use that term, Ken.
0: Yeah, I think, I think, I think you did. That was a, that was a lot to to digest there, right there. And you you mentioned just in time and I'm thinking, okay, we call that in agile now, minimum viable product. You threw in iterations, you threw in agile. It's like, yes, all of this can be done without boiling the entire ocean. As Bill always said, don't do big bang, um, A little at a time and we have to recognize that things change so rapidly we can't try to do it all at once because we never can so we might as well do it little chunks based on business priorities and then go from there okay we gotta we got oh yeah where'd that question go yeah bring that back thank you uh what are dan's thoughts on active ai based semantic layer tools like luminix.ai they solve many of the problems of stale information and having people in the middle of keeping things up to date. You familiar with that,
1: Dan? I am not familiar with tools, but I will give you a, a conceptual layer answer for that. All right, go for it. I, I think I think active AI tools are, are the next wave or the future. I think there's a lot of holes in a lot of these tools. Um, and some of the holes in even chat GPT are coming to light. Uh, so that's good that we discover the holes and where the, where the problems are so that we can fix them. That's the human nature of innovation. Um, I do like the statement that they, they claim to address uh, uh, the stale information and having people in the middle, but I have yet to see a tool or multiple tools that extend the taxonomies down to the technical level and then allow up application of scope and then allow automation of build out, right? So there's a whole process here. Now, don't forget, I started this conversation by being asked about dynamic data warehousing. I just started talking about what you can do manually with your glossary. Take your glossary, throw it in the garbage. Don't do that. Put it into a taxonomy format, right? Make it more useful. But do it in chunks. Do it in iterative chunks that you build on. But that's all manual. So how do you get a taxonomy in the first place? Well, that part is the dynamic discovery of metadata. That's where you start using your AI engines, in my opinion. And if you've got an AI engine to help you maintain it, great. If it works for you, wonderful. Um, But definitely start investing or investigating the use of AI for discovery of these business taxonomies and connection with existing taxonomies that are sold by companies uh, that, that do this because they, they maintain a whole bunch of these technical taxonomies with, but again, remember, you're only going to get business terms out of this process. It's the extension that is missing that you still have to do the manual work for today in adding your technical terms and your technical systems and your attributes to the business terms so that you get a different visual of lineage. This provides a complete picture of lineage and not just a systems-based lineage, which I always got aggravated with because the systems lineage only shows you that this field came off of this system over here or these five systems over here, but it doesn't give you the business context. It never gave you the business context. So by having it attached or extended in a taxonomy, you get the business context on top of it, sitting uh, co-joined right in the same place.
0: Awesome. Wow. Okay, so now now I, we got to close out here soon, but I, I have a question I have to ask you. I did the Snowflake Data Vault user group meeting, uh, spoke at that I think a week ago or two weeks ago, and got hit with a question that I didn't see coming, and I said, well, I'm not the right person. I got to ask Dan. The question was, will there be a Data Vault 3.0? Okay. <laughs> That's
1: not the first time I've got that question. I, well, I, you I figure you've gotten it more often around. than I do. <laughs> right. So let me just settle this out. I'm um, I, i going to be as delicate as I can. The short answer is no. How's that? Okay, uh, so uh, the, the, the slightly longer explanation for why is there has to be a major shift in the industry and in the way we do things or uh, the the ability to achieve certain things that will create that. If there's a major shift in terms of, you know, why do we need a whole new set of standards or or do we need a new methodology do we need something different majorly different in the architecture to accommodate these are things that we create a 3.0 i don't know how many of you remember but the 1.0 which never got published that way was actually just the model it took years for people to accept that the model was valid or viable to use And then they were ready to accept the fact that the methodology, the architecture and the implementation and all of that came with it. Now, what I will say is when I left Lockheed, all of that was already there. We developed the methodology, we developed the architecture, we developed the implementation, we had all the design, we had the standards, we had the people, we had the roles and responsibilities. We had all of that for Lockheed. Otherwise, I couldn't have done what I did with the team that I had, right? But the world wasn't ready for it. So we published under Data Vault, which was Data Vault 1.0. And then when the world needed to know that there is a difference between just the model and everything else, we came out and published Data Vault 2.0 to make sure that everyone understands Data Vault is a lot more than just the model, as we keep saying. Now, I'm going to try to be delicate about this as well. I have some people out there who don't like me very much. No surprise, I can't please everybody. <laughs> and they like to try to tear holes in what I say. And they like to try to tear me down. And one of these people published on the web that before you know it, there'll be a Data Vault 3.0 because Dan is only in it for the money. No, I'm not in it for the money. If I were in it for the money, I would have sold Data Vault right from the beginning, folks. As it was, I wrote a book and I gave it away, okay? I get 10% of whatever, every sale of that book. You know who takes the majority of that money? The publisher. The publisher, not me. yeah. <laughs> not me. So don't say I'm in it for the money. And if you see that or hear it, please stop it in its tracks. Please help me fight this fight. So this is where Data Vault 3.0 rumors came from. They ah. came from an unreliable source, and I'm gonna stop there and okay. say that this source I- is not to be trusted
0: boy, yeah, I, I had not actually heard that myself, but uh, I'm gonna circle back just a little more positive spin on this though is that Data Vault 2.0 we've seen take off in the last ten years for sure and definitely since the innovations with snowflake you and I have been working with snowflake uh, since I went to work at Snowflake and just seen this explosion and still getting people saying it's like how do, how have I not heard about this? Well, it's it was that was people getting being willing to look at things differently and take a different approach. Um, the, the classic, when the pupil is ready, the teacher will appear. And so Data Vault 2.0 does fill that, because everything you talked about, I know that you and I did at Denver Public Schools starting in about 2003, 2004. We, you taught me how to implement these things. You taught me the patterns. And we did all of that. We just couldn't put it all in one book. It was just too much to do. So that, that's a, a great clarification. Um, on you know, the difference even between Data Vault. You know, we, there was a couple technical changes with Data Vault 2 introducing the hash keys and hash diffs and a couple of other things. But yeah, I'll say there's no need for Data Vault 3.0 because Data Vault 2.0 is serving the need and solving real business problems today. And even with the changes to the cloud and data mesh, I know one of our, our listeners here today um, Omar is, do, is doing Data Vault inside of a data mesh. And so it is still applicable and it all works. So, but th- thank you for that, Dan, because well, that answered the question? Now I have a better answer for the Data Vault 3.0 next time somebody asks me. So I'm now prepared better and I always like to do that.
1: Yeah, so no before, we,
0: for, before we close, just want to quick, where can people uh, follow you and everything about Data Vault? Um, what's the best place for them to, to look for that I'll say, authoritative information on the Data Vault 2 methodology?
1: Well, we have free, and I mean free, forums, forums forums.datavaultalliance.com. Free to sign up, free to read it. There's no restrictions, and you get answers from myself and other instructors, including you, Kent, are out there um, helping us moderate. Thank you. Uh, Datavaultalliance.com is where you see the latest uh, news announcements, releases, podcasts, we do have a podcast channel. It's been quiet for a while. I apologize to everybody. We're going to kick that off again. We're going to start webinars really, really soon. Um, and, and we're going to make those webinars available as podcast streams as well. So that's coming. Um, but datavaultalliance.com is the heartbeat of every, everything we do. Uh, so if you want to know what's going on in the world uh, of DataVault, that's the right place to go. Just one last comment about DataVault and Data mesh. Data vault is the implementation strategy for data mesh, and Zemek herself says that data mesh is uh, implementations outside her scope for data mesh. And don't take my word for it. We had a guy from Roche uh, uh, leading, leading the charge at Roche for data mesh worldwide. At Roche, present at last year's conference, which is coming up in May. That was um, Paul sorry. Rankin, who was Paul my guest
0: uh, a few episodes back.
1: Yep. So you can definitely listen to him. He'll tell you all about. How Data Vault is the implementation strategy for Data Mesh. So I'm only echoing his words. If you can make it to our conference in May, please come. We'd love to see you. We got C.J. Date, yeah, of COD and Date Fame, the guy that helped create normalization forms. So, and we got book signings going on. So be there or be yeah, square. Yeah. So that.
0: So for that, everyone, that's www.dvc.com, Worldwide Data Vault Consortium, but www.dvc.com it starts on May 1st in Stowe, Vermont at the beautiful Stowe Flake Lodge. Uh, Bill Inman is going to be there. Dan and Bill and I are actually doing a a fireside chat. Uh, We've got a lot of exciting things going, um, so uh, come on out. It's a beautiful time of year to be in Vermont. Well, we got to close, Dan. Uh, We ran a little bit over, but it's always great talking to you and getting your insights and and thoughts about what's happening in our industry. So really thanks for being my guest and being here. Look forward to catching up with you in person at the, at the conference And well, it's really just like three weeks away here. Um, thanks everyone else for joining us today. Be sure to join me again in two weeks when my guest will be thought leader and CEO founder of Monte Carlo bar Moses. Uh, be sure to like the replays on this webcast today and tell all your friends about the true data ops podcast. Until next time, this is Kent Graziano, the Data Warrior, signing off for now.
1: Take care, bye-bye.